Okay, Matthew 17, I think what I'd like to do first is have you stand up, please, and let's have a word of prayer. Ah, you're shocked. You're like, we don't stand up before the sermon. What are you doing? We don't do that. You're changing the, you're changing the program. Yeah, I know. I can see the look of panic on some of your faces. What? Something new? Something different? No. Okay. I see that. All right, let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I want us to stand uh, out of respect for your word uh, before we open it, uh, before we look at it. Heavenly Father, we want to remind ourselves uh, that these are not the words of man. These are not the thoughts of man. These are not the ideas of man. Uh, We want to confess freely before you and the whole world that we believe somehow, some way, supernaturally, your spirit guided your apostles To write down the words that you want us to have in scripture. So we believe these are your words for us. We believe this is the only book you ever wrote. We believe the canon is closed. Nothing else is coming. Everything you want us to have is here. It is complete. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. So Father may we uh, open our ears. Jesus constantly said when he walked this earth. He who has ears to hear let him hear. Uh, May we not just listen this morning, but may we hear uh, what you are saying to us, Father. Uh, And as your appointed messenger, may uh, you be gracious to me uh, and help me to communicate in a way uh, that speaks for what the text is really saying. So, Father, may it encourage us, may it strengthen us, may it even rebuke us if need be, exhort us, may it lead us uh, in a way to live for you. And so we give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor that you deserve in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now you can sit down. Okay, I won't ask you to stand up again until the end, okay? So get settled in. I know some of you, you've got your imprint there, and you're trying to snuggle into your spot there. So some of you do well, though. Some of you move around to different seats. That's kind of cool, though. I get a little thrown off sometimes. Uh, So, but that's okay. That's good. So Matthew 17, you know, this is the season to believe, but we need to make sure that we're believing the right things. Uh, we hear about that all the time. Uh, you just got to have faith or you got to keep the faith and uh, you have to believe. But then we find out that these are people who are not followers of Jesus Christ that are talking about having faith and having belief. And really what it comes down to is they're talking about having faith in faith itself or having faith or belief in oneself. Uh, When really uh, any faith that does not have God as its object is really not worthy of faith, Uh, which we'll see here in a moment uh, how that works. Now, I put at the top of your outline, uh, not just Matthew, but Mark and Luke as well, because uh, we're not going to go to those places. But those three Gospels have this same uh, account. Uh, uh, The Gospel of John does not have the account of this a demon possessed boy, but the first three Gospels do. And so as I teach on this, uh, I'll say some things and you'll say, well, Matthew doesn't say that. No, but Mark will have said it or Luke will have said it. Uh, and you think, why do we have four Gospels and they say not exactly the same thing? Well, think of the four Gospels um, like four different artists who are all given the same object to paint. It's going to be the same object, but it's not going to look the same exactly because you have four different painters. The Gospels are the same thing. All four of these men lived with Jesus and were discipled by Jesus. And they're all writing down what the Spirit has led them to write, but from their perspective as individual men, individual human beings. So the four different perspectives of the four different Gospels gives us a more complete picture of Jesus. Uh, And you know that each Gospel has a different thrust, right? Matthew presents Jesus as king. He's trying to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is their Messiah. John presents Jesus as God. And then you have uh, Luke presenting Jesus as man and Mark presents Jesus as servant. So, you know, you put all those together, you get a wonderful, complete picture of Jesus. So we're in Matthew And Matthew's goal in writing was to present Jesus as the king of Israel, the Messiah of the Jewish people. 
So everything we read in the book of Matthew, we should keep that in the back of our minds. He's trying to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is really their king. And he is our king, too. So he's teaching them a very foundational principle of kingdom life. In fact, verse uh, in uh, Matthew, I'm in Luke, so I probably want to go to Matthew. Uh, Luke is where we're doing our daily devotional reading uh, with our reading group. Now, Matthew 17, uh, verse 14, is a turning point. Uh, It's at this verse where Jesus starts to teach his disciples some lessons about living in the kingdom of God. Up the first 16 chapters of Matthew is all about the kingdom of God and what it is and what it's like. Then he gets here and he starts spending probably all the way through the end of chapter 20 teaching his disciples some very important lessons. So the miracles we see, uh, the great things that we see are there in order to teach his disciples and then to teach us valuable things about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. Uh, Let me see. I don't. What's that say? Oh, I guess so. All right. Sometimes I do this so early in the week. I don't remember, you know, what I put. So I have to double check. So the foundational principle that he now remember they were up. What's interesting is what's happening in verses one through 13 in Matthew chapter 17. It's what we call the transfiguration. Jesus went up on the mountain and he took how many of his disciples with him? Three, Peter, James and John, which means he left how many behind? You guys, let me see. Twelve minus three equals nine. It's not a trick question. Nine. So when you get to verse 14 and he's returning, you guys, come on, you're just trying to harass me. Okay. When you get to verse 14, it says he returned. What he's saying is Jesus, Peter, James and John were returning to the nine that they left behind. Uh, From the Mount of Transfiguration, when they got a glimpse of Jesus in all of his glory. And Jesus also, probably the most awesome Bible conference that has ever occurred, happened on that mountain with Peter, James and John. Because there were two guest speakers at that conference. Who were they? Who? Moses and Elijah. You guys, it's like, all I hear is this. Either you're too afraid you're going to be wrong or you're just tired because it's too warm. We could turn on the AC. I always think it's too hot. But anyway, Moses and Elijah. Do you remember what they were talking about? Something very specific. Okay, I won't hold you in suspense. It says in the text they were talking about Jesus' upcoming death and departure from this world. Wow. Wow. So Moses and Elijah are there and they're talking to Jesus because even though they are in their heavenly form, not glorified yet, that's later after the return of Christ. But they do have some sort of semi glorified intermediate body. But they're talking to Jesus, asking him questions. They're not teaching Jesus. They're actually learning from him about what's going to be happening, his death, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Wow. You know, and they get a glimpse and Jesus is just transformed. His face is shining. His clothes are white. You know, so what he's giving those three disciples is a sneak peek of what it's going to be like when he returns again at the great second coming. So you get to verse 14. So where have they been? They've been up on the mountaintop and now they have to come back down to reality. Don't you hate that? Don't you hate reality sometimes? (laughs) It's more fun, right? You, you have a spiritual high. You're, you know, you're at a conference or you're a time of learning or you're away or something. But then it's time to go back. You know, it's like when you fly into Los Angeles, like my mother-in-law did last night. She always loves to come in at night because she just loves to see all the lights and everything looks so beautiful when you're 30,000 feet in the air. And then when you land, how's it look? Oh, she went home. She's kind of smoggy, huh? Kind of trashy, kind of dirty. So you got to come down from the mountaintop. That's verse 14. So they're coming down and he's going to teach them now the first principle of living in the kingdom of God. And that principle has to do. And you see that on your outline, a foundational principle of faith. So the lesson he's going to teach them through this illustration of this demon possessed boy Is that just as spiritual life must be received by faith at salvation, this is really important, 
So also the spiritual life we now live after salvation must also be by faith. Salvation by faith, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. But then all of Scripture says, even after I come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, living that life, following Jesus, being his disciple, will require faith. So it's important that we know what faith is. And it's important that we know in whom we put that faith. And so he's going to teach them uh, by this example. We're going to see some surprising themes. And by the way, faith in God by those that follow him. uh, The Bible is just overflowing with examples. Uh, We don't have time to to do all this, but uh, like Numbers chapter 13, you see Caleb. Caleb had faith in God that that promised land could be theirs. Remember, he came back. He was sent to spy. Uh, and only he and one other young man said, yeah, we can do this in the text. You know, and everyone else said, oh, no, the enemy is too great. We don't want to mess with them. Let's go with plan B. And it was Caleb. It helped me. I'm losing my train of thought. Who? Joshua. Sorry, I can't hear out of this year and I'm half deaf in this one. All right. Caleb and Joshua, they were the two in the text. Their number says by faith they believe. Uh, Job believed by faith that God was in control. You see that in Job 13. What about Daniel in Daniel chapter 6? So an edict goes out and it says, you can't pray to anyone except these pagan gods of Babylon because somebody tattled on him. Somebody tried to get him in trouble. Uh, Well, Daniel's not praying to our gods, so they convinced the king to pass the law. Anyone who doesn't bow down and pray to our gods will be thrown into a den of lions and destroyed. So as soon as Daniel got that edict, as soon as he saw the new law, oh, he can't pray. We can just imagine what he did, right? He went right upstairs, threw open the windows, got down on his knees and began to pray. We must obey God rather than men. We obey the governing authority until it asks us to disobey God. It says by faith. What's interesting, Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Noah built the ark. And by faith, Noah preached. So it's just an overwhelming theme in the scripture. So much so that Hebrews 12 there, the beginning, the first two verses says, we have so many witnesses of great faith recorded for us in the scriptures that we too should follow their example. Trying to throw off everything that tries to encumber us or hold us back in our faith in God. Just look at the text the writer encourages. Look at all the examples. So it's no surprise uh, that faith is the first lesson that Jesus is going to teach his disciples after they come down from the mountain of transfiguration. Coming down uh, that mountain is a tremendous shift in scenery. It's true. It's dramatic uh, from the mountain of glory to the valley of despair, I guess you could say, from the dazzling majesty of the unveiled Christ now down into the reality of a sin cursed world at its worst. Uh, worse. So Jesus will use this occasion to teach. We're going to break this into four parts. So you see those four parts, uh, hopefully. Where are we at here? Um, okay, you got that. So they're arguing about that. You see where it says the pleading father? Those are, that's the blanks kind of on the bottom of the screen. But uh, so we're going to break this into four parts. We're going to see a pleading fo- father. We're going to see powerless followers. We're going to see perverted faithless. And we will see finally the power of faith. So Jesus and these three come down and they encounter this crowd and this man makes his way to them. Uh, And there's something wrong desperately with his son. Uh, And the text in Luke 9 tells us this is his only son. And how interesting that this man's only son is going to now come into contact with God's only son uh, and his life will be changed forever. It's interesting, it says there in Matthew, they call his son a lunatic. Of course, it comes from the word lunar. Uh, or we could say moonstruck. And why is it like that? Because back then in those ancient times, people believed that uh, the mental madness was caused by influence of the moon. But uh, we know now today that's not so, but that's what they believe. And notice the text says that he was very ill, very ill. It's unusually serious, this situation. And when you put Matthew, Mark and Luke all together, you see that uh, he has convulsions. 
that he falls into fire and then he falls into water. He probably has to be watched all the time. He's probably scarred from burns and other accidents. And uh, another gospel says that he was uh, mute. He couldn't talk and he couldn't hear. He would foam at the mouth and there would just be screaming. And the text in one of the gospels says the demon would literally maul him and throw him around. This is a very unique especially violent situation. And this man was desperate, desperate. And there he is with the scribes and they're arguing with these nine disciples because they couldn't do anything uh, with this boy. But Jesus knew as he approached that this wasn't just a physiological thing. This wasn't just a mental thing. He understood that there was something more going on here, uh, that this young boy was possessed by a demon. Now, we don't have time this morning to this text really isn't asking us to learn about demon possession or to learn about exorcism. And should we be doing this today and all this kind of stuff? That's not what this text wants us to see. So we're not going to address that. Jesus is just using this as a vehicle to teach something. But let me just say this in passing. and I think I wrote it on your outline that every person who does not put their faith in Jesus Christ is subject to the control of Satan. And the more that a person willfully sins and rejects God, the more he makes himself open or available to the influence of sin. So I want to leave it at that. A believer in Jesus Christ cannot be possessed by a demon. Because the believer in Jesus Christ is possessed by someone greater than a demon. And it says what? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And who is that he specifically? He, the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't share his house with anyone. Just to let you know. But folks, the unbeliever is very susceptible to satanic influence. Very. And we don't know what this boy's situation is. Now, his father calls Jesus Lord. We don't know if that's because of belief or because of its respect or honor. Uh, But we know that this young boy was not a believer yet. So that's the scene that we come upon. Now we see that there are some powerless followers, especially in verse 16. He says, I brought my son to your disciples and they couldn't cure him. Now, this is a very strange thing. It's very strange. Why is it strange? We know from other texts, even in Matthew before in chapter 10, a year earlier, Jesus had sent out his disciples and said, I want you to do all these things, including casting out demons. So they go out. Boom, 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 boom. Immediate success. They come back. They're rejoicing. No problem. But now here they are, and that's probably why they're arguing with these nine. What's your problem? What's the deal? Why can't you get rid of this demon? I thought that you were followers of Jesus, and we've seen you do this all the time. What's the problem? You know, this is really interesting. Really interesting. They're cruising along, cruising along. Jesus casting out demons, and then boom, we got a problem. They were probably sweating bullets. They were probably like, when is Jesus coming down from that mountain? Because we need some help. Because it says there was a crowd and there were scribes who were the teachers of the law who were only there to try to trap and condemn Jesus. So there's all this mayhem going on. And then they see Jesus, Peter, James and John coming uh, and the crowd moves uh, toward the Lord. Maybe they couldn't cast him out because Jesus wasn't with them. No. Because a year earlier when they had sent them out, when he had sent them out, he wasn't with them physically and they were able to do that. He was going to be leaving them in the future and they carried on without him physically present. So it wasn't that they didn't have Jesus physically present. They still had his promise. They still had his power. But it's I see where I'm at here. No, we don't want that yet. So the problem, and Jesus tells them it's obvious what the problem is. They failed to properly use the power that Jesus had given them. So it wasn't a lack of, it was a misuse of that was the problem. So the man comes directly to Jesus. Now let's just think about that for a split second in our own day and time. 
And I think I wrote this on your outlines for you. That all throughout Christian history, unfortunately, there have been many Christians that have been faithless and weak and indifferent, which then causes many seeking unbelievers to despair of any help. In other words, many times, maybe perhaps even with us, there are unbelievers in desperate need of spiritual help, but we are in no position to help them because we ourselves spiritually, even as God's people, don't seem prepared or willing to help. Interesting. In a bad way. So then we see, you guys are in shock. What? Four points, you're on number three. Wow. Well, we'll slow down a little bit, so don't get too excited, okay? Now in verses 17 and 18, we have what we might call perverted faithless, because he uses that expression, doesn't he? In verses 17 and 18, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Now, our minds go right to the uh, physical, sexual, moral thing when we hear perverted. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not what that word has to always mean. He's talking about some sort of spiritual impotence or spiritual lack. His disciples have this faithless impotence. uh, And not only was this boy's father grieved, but now Jesus himself is grieved. And it's in his humanity That he's saying, how long do I have to put up with these people? He's not sinning, but in his humanity. And we'll see why he says that in a moment. And he says, this generation, how long do I have to put up with this generation? What's he talking about? Well, he's turning his comments to the whole nation of Israel, to the scribes that were there, to his own disciples that were there, and even to this man, because the account of this story in Mark 9, this man says to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate to that because every single one of us, even as children of God and followers of Christ, are a mixed bag. Our faith is up. Our faith is down. We're trusting. We're not trusting. Things get difficult. We get scared. The vice tightens. The pressure comes and we start to wobble. But that man was honest. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. What does he mean by perverted? The word perverted means a twisting or a bending out of shape. Amanda's going to love this. This word was used commonly to refer to someone making pottery. But they screwed it up. And they're trying to shape it. And she doesn't do that. I've got wonderful pieces of pottery she's done. So. But it gets shaped crooked. Well, it's not the right shape. And then he goes and he puts it into the fire or into the kiln and it sets crooked. It's twisted. Maybe you have a name for your new business, perverted pottery. I don't know. Don't put it online because if you Google that, there could be problems. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's bad. Okay. But it's a piece of pottery that's not shaped correctly. It's bent or twisted the wrong way, and then he sticks it in the oven, and it sets that way. And Jesus is saying, spiritually, that's what can happen. Because, inevitably, someone especially who does not place their trust in Jesus Christ, who does not generally trust God, cannot escape having a distorted view of God. The unbeliever has wrong views of God all the time, wrong views of heaven, wrong views of hell, wrong views of eternal life. And without the influence of God in their life, they can't help but be perverted in their thinking about God. And Jesus was always about the business of trying to get people to think properly and correctly about his heavenly father. And he says, how long, you know, how long uh, do I have to deal with this? So Jesus is longing for heaven. Remember, he was just up on the Mount of Transfiguration, fellowshipping with his heavenly father. His disciples got a glimpse of his glory. And then he has to come back down into the valley. And maybe he's just getting tired. Maybe he's thinking about the future, you know, and what is coming. And he had already done so many miracles 
in front of his disciples and in front of the crowds. They had already seen him feed 4,000. He fed 5,000 with just a handful of loaves and fishes. He had already done so much. And yet, they're still having these meltdowns when a crisis comes up. And so he's saying, how long? You know, how long? The crowds were following him. The Bible tells us crowds followed him to get a thrill or to get something. At one point, the Bible says the crowds followed him to the other side of the water because they remembered how he fed them the day before. And by the way, folks, be careful that we're not just going to the Lord because we want something. We're only going to follow God if he continues to give us. That's prosperity gospel. We don't want that. The scribes were following him to trap him and destroy him. His disciples were following him genuinely. But the text is clear that a lot of times they were confused and selfish. I mean, in a little bit, we're not going to look at this today. But if you continue to read through the passage, not now, but later, you'll see. He says, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be put to death. And they say, which one of us is going to be first in your kingdom? He just tells them and he's going to be crucified and put to death. And they're arguing over who's number one. So they're following him. But they're often confused and selfish. No wonder he says, how long do I have to put up with this? Remember, that's not a sinful statement. But here's the good news. Because he says what? Bring the boy to me. You know what he's saying there? With all the unbelief and all the hassles and everything that he has to put up with, he is not in despair. He is not going to get sidetracked from his mission. He is not going to let anything detour him, even unbelief. He came to do something and he was going to do it. It's about faithfulness in ministry. It's about faithfulness in following God. It's about, as one gospel says, putting your hand to the plow and not looking back. Like that great hymn, right? Though none go with me, still I will follow. So the exorcism, the three gospels put together, tells us that it was so violent when Jesus told the demon to come out of this boy. It was so violent that everybody around thought that the kid was dead. Because it gave one last effort to destroy this young man before he came out. But... A demon has no choice but to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, demons obey the Lord better than his own people sometimes. So the demon comes out. It says that the boy was cured at once. Mark chapter 9 tells us this is so precious and sweet that Jesus took the boy by the hand and he got up. Isn't that amazing? Completely normal. Now he can play with the other boys. No more fear of death. No more fear of fire or water. No more being controlled. No more being manipulated. No more being tormented. And what does Matthew uh, tell us? And I think it's it's the Luke account in Luke chapter 9. It says that all the people were amazed at the greatness of God. The greatness of God. Greatness there meaning splendor or magnificence. So the crowd, too, got a little sneak peek of what Jesus' glory will be like when he comes again. And when it says there in Luke 9 that the crowd was amazed at the greatness of God, it lets us know that this was a very different encounter with a demon. Jesus, it's recorded in many places, especially in Matthew, had encounters with demons. But nowhere does it say the crowd was amazed at the greatness of God. I mean, they saw something unique and powerful and majestic full of splendor in what Jesus did that day. And it made them worship God. Now, lastly, let's look at, in this account, verses 19 through 21, look at the power of faith. Look at the power of faith. Jesus' miracle here was not just a miracle. None of the miracles recorded in Scripture were ever for the sake of just doing a miracle. We put another M word with miracle whenever we see it. Miracle and message. The miracles recorded in Scripture are there to drive home the meaning of a message. Jesus was trying to teach something to his followers. 
That's why he cured this boy. And it says they come to Jesus privately. And in my notes here, I put LOL exclamation point. Because they were embarrassed that they couldn't do this. They know they had failed and they were perplexed. They're like, Jesus, we don't get it. We were always able to do this before. Then all of a sudden we can't do this. And Jesus did in just one word what they had tried and tried and tried to do and couldn't. And he says to them, the problem is your littleness of faith. Then the disciples came to privately. Verse 20, he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. Now, this is an interesting word or an interesting idea that we want to think about. Because, you know, and I know you're already uncomfortable, but let's turn it up a little bit more. A little bit of holy uncomfortableness is never a bad thing. He's also speaking to you and me. He's speaking to people. He's speaking to men here, his disciples, who have placed their saving faith in him. He's speaking to true followers. And he says, you are true followers of mine. There's no doubt about that. But your faith is little. And I'm thinking, okay, Peter, James, John, you know, all the others, they have little faith. Where does that leave me? But let's look at that for a minute. They had saving faith. They had trusting faith, obviously, because they were trying to heal. And it's not a total lack of faith. It's not the absence of faith. That's the problem. Jesus says it's your littleness of faith. They lack sufficient faith to use the resources that Jesus had given them for this situation. Now, we don't have time to study this out. Did I put this up there yet? I don't know. Uh, no. Well, I'll do that because you might need to write that. Need some time to write that down. But the littleness of faith. Did you ever have you ever noticed in the scriptures, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that this small faith was a typical condition for the twelve disciples? And I, I think rightly so. You know, the book of the Revelation says that there's going to be pillars right in heaven and each one named for the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, you know, and that the apostles are going to have a special position uh, in heaven and so on and so forth. These are great men, but they were also men with a sin nature, just like you and me. They were constantly and I think their faith grew in leaps and bounds after the resurrection. And they begin to put pieces together. But while Jesus is discipling them, we see again and again and again that he's challenging them about their little faith. He knows that he's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to be put to death. He knows that he's going to be gone. He'll no longer be with them face to face. They'll no longer be able to sit and have conversations with him, you know, to walk with him and to eat with him. And they need to learn That it might get harder to have faith. So he's trying to teach them. I mean, Matthew chapter 6. He says that they are men of little faith when he's trying to provide for their physical needs. Matthew 8, 26. There's a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And he says, you men of little faith. In Matthew 14, Jesus or Peter walks out on the water to go to Jesus. Remember when he was walking across the water? Then Peter almost gets there. And what, what starts to happen? Look, 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 look. He starts to sink. And Jesus, of course, reaches out to him. But he also says what? Well, in Matthew 14, he says, oh, you of little faith. I mean, that's what you want to hear when you're sinking, going under. You know, oh, little faith. It's like, oh. Matthew 16 is an interesting passage. Matthew 16, verses 8 through whatever. We won't go there. But the disciples say, you know, it's evening time and we have no food. What are we going to do? And this is, I'm trying not to laugh because I would do the same thing. This is after they already helped him feed 5,000. And after... They had already helped him or seen him feed 4,000 miraculously. And then this is a third occasion where it's just the disciples. And they say, oh, Jesus, what are we going to do? We got no food. It's evening time. Oh, what are we going to do? No food. I don't know if there's a Hebrew word for duh, but I don't know. Jesus must have just been beside himself. It would be even funnier if I wasn't like that. It would be even funnier if you weren't like that. 
And I think that's why he was saying, how long, how long he he and what did he do there in Matthew 16? He reminded them, don't you remember when I fed the five thousand? Don't you remember when I fed the four thousand and you're still worried because you don't have food in front of you? Why don't you believe little faith is faith that believes in God only when you have something in your hand? When God has already provided, when things are good and well and under control, it's easy to trust God. But as soon as circumstances get difficult or become uncertain or threatening or disappointing, then our faith withers and wavers and wobbles. You know, and the disciples faith is really no different than the faith of most of the believers through all ages, right? When everything's good and easy and all of our needs are being met, then our faith is great and strong. But then when we're in need, our faith is small and we start to doubt and we start to wonder and we start to disobey and we start to panic and we start to grumble. and We start to complain, we start to plunge into despair. That's little faith. So what is great faith? Great faith, trust God when there is. What's there? What's after the word is? Very good. It was kind of, I was trying to be cute, but it didn't work. There's nothing there. That's the word, nothing. Great faith, trust God when there is nothing. Great faith, trust God when there is nothing. There's no food to eat. There's no money to buy food to pay bills. There's no home to live. There are no friends to comfort you. There's no loved ones left anymore to spend time with. You have no success. Your health has left. Great faith trusts God while the winds are howling and the suffering continues. You know, uh, the seventh is the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. I was watching a, a World War II documentary last night on the History Channel. Uh, yes, I watch the History Channel. I'm old. That's what we do. But that Winston Churchill in World War II, he was something. He was the only man between the Nazis and the total annihilation of all of Europe. The United States didn't help England for about 14 months. So Winston Churchill, you know, the Nazis are bombing London. Over 40,000 civilians are killed. And Hitler's thinking, these people are going to cave. When things get hard, they're not going to have a stomach for it. Winston Churchill goes on the radio. And he's speaking to the English people, but he designed that speech to also, because he knew Hitler was going to be listening. He said, we're not giving up. We'll fight him in the streets. We'll fight him in the air. We'll fight him in the Water, we'll fight them street to street. We don't care. And he utters that famous line. He says, we shall never surrender. No, that made me think of great faith. Great faith says, I shall never surrender. I shall never surrender. So what was Jesus trying to teach his disciples? What is the lesson here? One word. Great faith is all about persistence. Persistence. Soon he'd be gone and they'd no longer have him. They needed to know that things were going to get harder. And we stopped to think, how long did these nine try to cast out that demon? Well, we don't know, but at some point we know they gave up. They stopped trying. And when Jesus had sent them out a year earlier, it was so much easier. It was automatic. But it's interesting that he never made them the promise that it would be easy. They were saying, we had such great success. Everything was good. Everything was great. We're rolling along. Now it's so hard. What's wrong? And Jesus said, well, I never promised you that it would always be easy. Disciples had to learn that the power they were given was not inherent within themselves. It was in and from Jesus. They had to depend on his provision and his will, not their own strength. That's for us too, right? We have to always depend upon the Lord in order to minister effectively, in order to live the Christian life effectively. And sometimes to strengthen 
our faith and our dependence on him. And he did this with those nine disciples to strengthen their faith and dependence on him. Sometimes the Lord will ask us to wait. Not a word we like to hear. We live in a microwave age. Sometimes to strengthen us. To increase our dependence on God. To teach us. Jesus will ask us to wait. Sometimes for a really long time. He'll ask us to pray. To be persistent. To pray and to pray and to pray. And don't stop praying. And he may ask us to wait. It's like someone who lifts weights. You don't walk into the gym. You know for your first session. And you know bench press 200 pounds. You know unless you're. Elijah, I'm sure he could do that. But most of us, you have to start out with little weights, right? I already told you, it's humiliating. My son Jay took me to the gym. I'm not a gym person, but he talked me into going with him. And so, you know, he's just, well, first of all, my daughter-in-law is lifting way more than me. I'm so embarrassed. She probably weighs 110 pounds, but she's been at it a long time. So here I, he goes, I could barely do this. Jay goes, well, let's switch it to 15. So I'm like, oh, my gosh. Wow. That's what you want to see, a giant man with tiny little barbells. <laughs> but weightlifters, you have to start out small, right? It takes a long time to build up. The same with faith. Start out small. It takes many series of opportunities that God allows us to endure in order to strengthen our faith, to be seasoned, faithful followers. It exposes our own weaknesses and it drives us to the Lord by waiting. And then Jesus mentions this whole mustard seed. It's not really understood well what he's saying here. It says in verse 20, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. Now, we want to be careful. But like I said, this is not really understood uh, among Christians. The mustard seed. Jesus emphasis here is on the growth of something small to something great. And the expression to move mountains was he wasn't saying literally to move a mountain. That was a common Jewish expression. To move mountains meant to be able to overcome great obstacles. Now, the mustard seed was one of the smallest seeds in the Middle East, in that Mediterranean culture or uh, area. And yet at full growth, it would grow sometimes over 15 feet high from that smallest seed. So Jesus is saying that mustard seed faith is faith that grows from small to great. It continues to grow and it's productive because it never gives up. We don't have time to go there, but you need to write down Luke 11, verse 8 and Luke 18, verse 1, because there are two parables there about this kind of growing great faith. There's a a man who has a friend and he keeps knocking and he pesters him and he's knocking, knocking. And finally, the guy says, "Okay, I'll give you whatever you want. Just stop knocking. And then Luke 18 We see that widow. Remember the story of the widow that kept going to the judge and says, protect me from my enemies. And she kept coming and he kept saying no. And then one night he thought, you know what? If I keep saying no, she's just going to keep coming back. So I'm going to give her her protection. Her persistence paid off. And it's interesting in Luke 18, Jesus told that story in verse one to teach them to keep praying and never lose heart. It's about persistence in prayer. Great faith in God is the instrument that allows us to remove the hills of difficulty that block our path to obeying him. And Jesus, therefore, is talking figuratively about mountain-sized difficulties like the one these nine were experiencing trying to cast out this demon. Want to be careful here. A lot of people misuse faith and misuse these two verses. He's not talking about prosperity gospel. If we just have enough faith, God will give us everything we want. He's not talking about the power gospel. You know, if we just have enough faith, he'll heal us every time from every sickness and he'll heal every sick person, you know, that we pray over. He's not talking about having faith in faith itself, because a lot of unbelievers have faith in faith. Does that make sense? 
They believe that just believing is going to make a difference. No. Or they believe of having faith in themselves. The power of faith is in the object of that faith. And the object of our faith resides in the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent one and only God. That's where the power resides. Power resides in the God in whom we have faith. And that faith is always in the framework of God's will. We can pray until we die for something that's outside of God's will and he's not going to bless it. Faith only has as much power as the object of that faith. And Jesus said a few times to people that he healed, uh, your faith has healed you. What he was saying is your faith in God has enabled me to heal you. Nothing of my will and promise is impossible, Jesus says, for you if you persistently and prayerfully trust in me. The disciples couldn't heal this boy because they had not persisted in God. They were depending on themselves. That's what the text says. Maybe that earlier success made them stop depending so much on God. Has that ever happened to you? Everything's good. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful in our spiritual lives, especially our prayer life, kind of peters out. It's not until there's a crisis that we're driven back to prayer and driven back to the Lord. And Jesus is saying here, that's not the kind of followers I want in my kingdom. It doesn't matter if times are high, times are low, times are wide. That makes sense. We should be persistent in prayer. The emphasis here is on prayer because, as we said, verse 21, the earliest manuscripts of Matthew don't have this verse. But the account in the book of Mark does have that verse. And it says this type can only come out by prayer. So obviously Jesus was emphasizing prayer. His emphasis is on prayer. This gentleman right here. No, that's not Ron Muir when he was in high school. That is. That's a gentleman by the name of George Mueller. I love Christian biography. If you want to be encouraged in your walk with the Lord, if you want to be inspired by people who have gone on before us and have left a legacy of faith, just look at and study some of these lives. George Mueller. Uh, lived in England from 1805 to 1898. He was a Christian leader. He was in charge of a place called Ashley Down Orphanage in London. And in his lifetime, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. He established 117 Christian schools that educated over 120,000 children. He made a commitment once uh, early in his life, in his Christian walk, to begin praying for five personal friends that he had. Five close friends. So he prayed for five years. And the first friend came to Christ. He continues to pray on for five more years. So a total of ten years. And he sees the second and third friends come to Christ. So then he prays for 25 years before his fourth friend comes to Christ. He records all this in his diary. Well, he finally dies at the age of, what did I say? Dies at the age of 93, almost 93. But he still had that fifth friend. He had been praying for over 50 years for these five men. 25 years now just for this one last friend. But he dies, but three months after his death, that fifth friend comes to Christ. So he spends 50 years praying that these friends of his would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that persistent? Yeah. It is the season to believe, but Jesus said, believe in God, believe also in me. So never give up, never surrender, press on, keep going, be persistent. Especially in prayer. Let this verse ring in your ears as the last thing we say here this morning. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Paul told them, be courageously persistent in prayer. Hold fast to prayer. Don't let go of prayer. Keep alert in prayer. 
with an attitude of thanksgiving. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are excited this morning. We are encouraged. We are challenged that we have to be persistent people, particularly in prayer. I'm going to be totally honest, Father. So many of us have such little faith. We know you as Lord and Savior. We don't wonder or question our salvation. But our daily lives that we live are so little in faith. We have so much time to do so many other things that are not really important to the kingdom of God. And our spiritual lives just peter out. They just fade into the background. And then we wonder why we're caught off guard when a crisis appears. Or we're caught off guard because we don't know how to help an unbeliever who comes with a problem. Because we've neglected our own spiritual lives because of the littleness of our faith. Father, we do believe we need you to help our unbelief. Father, we all need to make a recommitment to being people of great faith. People who will trust in you and follow you and obey you when there is nothing. When there is nothing. To trust in you, to believe in you, to follow you. When we have doubts, when we have questions, when we wonder what's coming next, how we're going to do this. May our circumstances not dictate our faith. But may we let you have your perfect way in our lives. And may we not waver, may we not wobble, may we not even wiggle in our faith. The scriptures are clear. It is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this grace and faith is not our own. It's the gift of God. So, Father, we pray that you would give us the faith to have faith. And that we would place our faith and trust and hope completely in you. And that would be demonstrated in our lives. By our commitment to the things which are important to you. And in the passage we saw today, specifically prayer. May our prayer lives demonstrate that we are persistently trusting in you. If you're here this morning and this is something you needed to be reminded of, hold up your hand. I'm not even opening my eyes and neither should anyone else. Go ahead and put your hands down. Father, many of us say we do believe help our unbelief. So we pray that we would look at what you have done. Your proven track record in our lives, the greatest being the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. And then all the other things you have done for us. May it be a reminder that you are trustworthy. And that we can place our faith in you, even when things are hard, even when things are difficult. Teach us to have great faith. So, Father, we leave here today rejoicing, praising you, thanking you for speaking to our hearts and our minds. And uh, may we just be a more faithful people, people of great faith. And we give all the glory to Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here today. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week.